Um, my name's Chris Parker. I live in Oak Park. That's a suburb. They probably figured that out. <laughs> this is Brad, Sarah, and Daryl. And we're in trouble. A no doubt. See me and my boyfriend, Mike. Tonight's our anniversary. But then he went and canceled. And now I'm stuck watching these three. And it's so hard. And it's so hard. Babysitting these guys. She got the... I got this call from Brenda. I went to pick her up. The tire had a blowout, and my mom's car got shot up. And these guys started to chase us. And we all got hijacked. <laughs> We're cruising down the highway. In this big old Cadillac, and it's so hard. It's so hard. Babysitting these guys. She got the baby. Hello, guys. What's up? What's up? Hi. Wow, what a trip, man! And thanks, yeah. thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for taking time. Um, welcome to Red River Podcast. And uh, you know, we we have a lot of guests on, and you know, we talk movies, music, and pop culture, and the idea really came from the fact that I realized Hulu had toy soldiers on recently. And I was like, you know what? I'm like, here's a movie that doesn't, I, I feel like the, the fans love it. I just feel like it's slightly underrated because it's so damn good. And from there, we're like, let's just do a deep dive on toy soldiers. And then I was like, let me see if I could, you know, talk to one of the, the actors in the movie and I saw that you're super active, super awesome. I, I saw that you just did the New Jersey horror uh, convention. So welcome, Keith Coogan, man. How was that convention? Oh, it was great. Uh, it was uh, mere hours after uh, the weather had come in and, the, you know, the people have died in Jersey and New York. And my mother's like, are you are you flying? into?" we flew into uh, Pittsburgh and then drove up and um it was beautiful. It was blue skies and a lot of the guests had worked in uh, public utilities and, you know, had just pulled three 16 hour shifts to get the power back on. But, you know, they came out to see the terrifier and uh, <laughs> uh, it was a great con. You know, it's funny. Uh, I'm not exactly known for horror. And uh, I guess I slip in there because um, Danielle Harris had previously been a guest and I kind of went in on don't tell on the babysitters dead. And since dead's in the title uh, this year, it was Joanna, <laughs> Joanna Cassidy was in the booth next to me. And, you know, from Blade Runner to uh, who framed Roger Rabbit under fire. And of course the role she seems to be recognized for quite a bit, Rose Lindsay and don't tell on the babysitters dead. So uh everywhere i go around the country um fans react different movies sometimes it's a book of love place or I, fox and the hound is huge book, book uh, of love. soldiers book, got a lot of love in uh, new jersey yeah and book of love is like super underrated like that's a movie and that's another horror connection too because it's directed by robert shea 
who yes, and was produced by Rachel Talalay, who directed uh, Freddy's final final nightmare and Tank Girl and the last a uh, lot of the last season of Doctor Who. Um, okay. Rachel's a dear friend, and she was trying to produce uh, under Bob Shea, who owns the studio. So we'd be shooting late at night and going, and he's like, you know, one more shot with the car and the thing, and and Rachel would go, we got to cut it, Bob. We got to got to go home, and he goes. No, we're going to shoot this. She goes, what point? Why hire me if a producer? You're not going to let me do my job. So we went, we, we, God knows what it spent, but it didn't have a huge box office, you know, pickup when it came out because it was a very, it was a, it's a headpiece. It's by Bill Kotzwinkel based on the novel, Jack in the Box. It's his coming of age. And this guy's like a Ken Kesey psychedelic trippy dippy hippie. So his book, uh, Bob Shea likened it when he made it. He goes, it's, the 50s i'm like yeah like happy days and stuff he goes no think more like porkies so mm. he wanted it raunchy and language and boobies and the whole you know sex it was all about sex the book of love if you that's will. that's why i i probably loved it as a kid i missed it in the theaters but i i think it was like 1990 so maybe i was like 12 i rented it and it was one of those movies that you rent you know back in the the movie the, the video store days where you take a chance on a movie and it, it was great. It was one of those movies that like, I, you can't even really stream it now. It's, it's not up for like, you can't like get it. You can't even rent it. I have not seen it. And there's no recent pressings of DVDs or uh, video cassettes. So people bring me, um, you know, laser discs of different movies and stuff like that. Most of the time I see book of love. It's either on VHS mm-hmm. Uh, or uh, DVD. They had a problem with the original DVD pressing. They sent out, you know, the cast and crew. Here's your copy. It's beautiful. We're like, oh, it's because it was called Jack in the Box when we were filming it. So it had gone through a couple of titles, like The Great Pretender was one really strong title. And it's a great moment where Jack Twiller's got grease on his hair and he leans against her wallpaper and just leaves this grease stain. And The Great Pretender's playing under that. So they were like, you know, that's that might be the movie title. And then they did Book of Love and they got Bo Diddley to come in and re-record an updated remixed version of Book of Love. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, Are you new to that convention circuit? Is that something you've been doing for a while, the autograph thing? Because I've gone to several of them, you know, as a fan. I always wonder if, how it is for people. On the other end, if people are going to see, do you ever like get to meet an actor you never, you know, that you're a fan of, you never had a chance to, you know? Oh, always. Uh, my wife is a big fan girl and she's taught me a thing or two about conventions. And now, you know, I'm a gap been doing conventions for about eight years. Oh, okay. And uh, my wife and I met at my first convention. She oh, wasn't wow. she wasn't there for me. That was a whole <laughs> long story. Oh, that's who was she uh, there? Who was she there to go see? I got to know. She was there to go see Jeremy Licht and Tracy Gold, oh, Jeremy man. Miller. And <laughs> that's uh, great. The person was. Yeah, it wasn't me. Okay. <laughs> Her friends wanted to see me because they were collectors and they had pieces. They were like, we just, Keith Coogan's never done an autograph convention. They're like, it's a Keith Coogan emergency. She, 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 my wife's like, I don't know who that is. There's never going to be a Keith Coogan emergency. What, ma- <laughs> what, what, what made you do that first one? Uh, my friend Scotty Schwartz had thrown it. He, it was the LA Celebrity Show uh, at uh, Hollywood Highland. And it had Genie and uh, voice actors and... Uh, uh, a big mishmash of, of what I call convention horrors now that I know. Uh, basically, people that are like, hey, will you do a, com-? yes, they'll, you know, they'll come <laughs> to a convention. And I'm lightweight too because they're so fun. I, we try to do about five a year. 
and uh, from uh, we got engaged at Chiller Theater in Parsippany, New Jersey. Later that year in October, we got married and uh, have just done as many conventions as we can. And it opened up from just pop culture and eighties, you know, and autograph conventions. I start, we started to do the horror because um, uh, they said that the horror uh, conventions, although they have deep fan base, meaning they come every time they're like, we kind of hit a plateau. Mm. Uh, they're great because they come with their money to buy the doll and the mask and the thing. And it's, you know, the, the photo ops and everything. Um, and so they've opened up to just pop culture and eighties, of course, this huge nineties is becoming celebrated. I think um, it is, it I, is definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's always great to come out and ride on. Uh... <laughs> well, you did do a tales from the crypt episode. I did. And, a, and a, Oh, it was a great cast. Kevin. Great Dillon, cast. Amazing cast. Yeah. Yeah. Salinger, Will Wheaton, Courtney Gaines, uh, Deloise, um, London, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. One, of, yeah. One, one of the London twins, but also written and directed by the legendary Bob Gale. Yeah, Bob is great. He he's like a kid in a uh, you know uh, a, a ball pit <laughs> <laughs> and toy a toy box. You know, he just is happy. he loves it. He's subversive, obviously. Look at 1941. Look at used cars. Look at um, God. What else has he written? I want to hold your hand. Uh, he's um, it's funny where a lot of us, except for Courtney Gaines, I think a lot of us are known for being funny mm. from Deloise to London to me and Will and, uh, you know, and Courtney Gaines is, is a funny bastard too. Um, the burbs. So we had a lot of fun doing it. I mean, it was like, we brought guitars to the set and we're jamming and, um, uh, no interesting note in house of horror the exterior of the big house of horror is the same house from nothing but trouble starring Dan Aykroyd and John Candy. Oh, that's all awesome. uh, great movie. Yeah. Well, that... mm. <laughs> I mean, it has a place in my nostalgic. Heart, let's say, let's I, 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 I think that movie aged better. Like when I watch it now, like right. even the cast, like to me more. Was, right. It's I green mean... frighteners and frighteners was one of those that was all over the map. And sure. I think that people have gotten, because of their short attention spans, they need more episodic movies rather than a 90 minute dramatic dra monkey bone. Another great example. What the hell am I watching? <laughs> um, audiences have opened up to those kinds of films, I guess, and forgive them more. And you're, like you're Super Mario Brothers. They're like, that was genius, actually. Why did we dog on that? <laughs> I think I think it's just because you look back, you know, like we're at a certain age, you know, like I'm 43. So it's like you you remember it like when I look back at, at like action movies, you know, we had on Sam Furstenberg uh, who directed American Ninja and all those really cool movies for Canon. And it, I love when I, when I look back at it, is American Ninja like a great movie? Like, all right. I mean, it's debatable, but it's just, it feels like you get time warp back into it. Even when you watch creep show, like you, you know, movies like that, you, yeah. you have to mentally go back to that point when you were a kid watching it and and i think it just i don't know that's why maybe you get you gauge it differently also they were on, in the early days of cable they would play some of these movies like over a million over. times and as a kid you're watching i didn't have a vcr player or anything yet you know and that's due to right the way that residuals and licenses usually go quarterly so they'll have 90 days to play it and and it's not per play it's per market and so once they've paid top dollar for a primetime viewing, 
they can play the crap out of that really at no extra cost to the distributor um, or much of a cost. So within 90 days, yes, you'll see it play. And I love it when you know summer rolls around and they'll pull out Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead to play all summer. Um, the odd showing of Book of Love or Toy Soldiers on cable. That's one of the ways that I've been able to see them recently. Um, and the, what was I, oh, going back to, I think it was expectations. So when we got to movies that we thought stunk back then, it was because there was an expectation of, is it a Simpson Brookheimer kind of movie? Is it a buddy cop movie? Like we had these kind of set genres and I remember hiding out and got dinged for being a thriller comedy. They're like, we can't take these two genres and really put them in one movie. Now we see this all the time. Uh, Toy Soldiers tends to be at the end of that whole 80s thing. It was technically made in 90 and came out in 91, but it, it doesn't subvert the genre. It says, no, we understand the genre, Die Hard, Die Hard in school. Uh, yeah, and yeah. we're not gonna we're not gonna put a tongue in cheek. We're gonna blow a hole in the head and blow up the you know police car and like rockets and helicopters and we're not gonna um uh push the boundaries of or the envelope of the genre and i think that we get a lot of directors that do that now i can't wait for dune to see where because my expectations now are really high after the masterpiece that was 2049 oh like i think i think dune could be amazing yeah dennis dennis is a genius Denny Villeneuve. <laughs> oh yeah, I can't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I got, Hiding Out was interesting. I love John Cryer. I love that movie. Um, currently up on Amazon Prime for anyone who wants to watch it. But the director Bob Giraldi, like I couldn't really catch many credits on him. He seems to be only involved in music videos. Was that the case? That this was his only movie? He did a Pepsi commercial with Michael Jackson. There was a problem with the pyrotechnics and it set oh, like, oh, his hair on fire. Um, that was well, him. This is how we got him. Uh, hiding out is interesting because it also, not only did Bob Giraldi kind of start directing movies, I, I don't know what other credits he had, but he had a good eye. He also hired Daniel Pearl as his DP. Daniel Pearl had shot Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original. Whoa. And when he moved forward, a lot of like heavy metal bands and music videos, they came to him and they said, hey, we want the guy who shot Texas Chainsaw, you know, as part of their kind of like aesthetic. So Daniel Pearl, the, the DP, wound up shooting a lot of music videos, probably how he built it is, established his relationship with Bob Giraldi. They worked together. Bob Giraldi would go in and direct the actors, faster, funnier, you know. Uh, and then Daniel Pearl would set up the kind of aesthetic. And look, there was a week in Boston they did with hiding out they set it as a suspense thriller and the long lenses and the wet downs and the backlighting and the like whole look and then they go to high school what what so it was an interesting what if and i think it pulled it off it it did its business nobody really walked away with a bunch of money it's played enough on you know cable and dvd and all that stuff um, John Cryer put it all together, found the material, got the producers the financing and starred in it. Um, and I didn't know that when we were making it. I just thought, well, yeah, he's John Cryer. Of course, you're just going to hire him. He, no, he hired everybody else. At, the, at that time, what did, like, I'm trying to remember what else John Cryer had done by 86, 87. He oh, he did. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ducky. And uh, The Breakfast Club. No Small Affair. Um, part um 
Morgan Stewart's coming home. Uh, was dudes? Was it pre dudes or post dudes? Oh yeah, I think dudes was like eighty six, probably. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So pretty and pink. Yeah. I mean, wow. Yeah, he had a good bank of you know half a dozen films and a couple of indies and uh, you know Ducky right there. You're good to go for a while. Sure. <laughs> An iconic character. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and he gets to work with, uh, um, you know, in, in school. I, I just like I like the plot. You know, it's it's so kind of ridiculous <laughs> in the beginning. You know, like you see like the beard and so, he still looks like young. But uh, I, I, I loved it, man. And, and the fact that the fact that you could now really embrace streaming services and watch a lot of these movies really keeps it going. That's why uh like anniversaries are celebrated you know like the anniversary just recently of uh, yeah right of uh, the stars will do like live tweets they'll be like start watching at eight and i'll you know tweet along and yeah it's, cra- where all it, the were. <laughs> it's crazy and and to talk about the dichotomy too like uh for toy soldiers you know it's the same thing like it's it's a very violent beginning and it's a pretty violent movie because the terrorists are pretty ruthless you know shout out to andy divoff man i love that dude um and but then it switches to this you know school and everything is calm and then it goes back to like just pure fucking violence you know so uh what what do you uh, big shout out to the score which took it from that militaristic tense suspense thriller action to to regis school and it's like all it has nice musical themes throughout and you know it it is it doesn't put any tongue in its cheek it goes straight forward and we didn't even think about standing around in our underwear we just went through the logic it's hot it's virginia you know seven guys crammed in a room that's usually for two so and the power's out there's no ac we'll we'll be in our underwear done deal didn't even question it not one pair of boxers in sight no to this day i get a lot of fans that are like i knew i was gay when yes (laughs) um so going back to the very beginning, I, I, I do want to acknowledge your grandfather. I, I um, you know, I, I knew, but I didn't know to the extent, you know, like his career. And it, it's pretty crazy. If you could just kind of like explain, uh, you know, your grandfather for a little bit. I know he's a huge part of your life. I'll, I'll try it as, as concise as I can, because I'd really love to get his biopic made. Born in a basically a vaudevillian trunk to vaudeville parents. Um, he quickly was put on stage as a toddler and spotted by Charlie Chaplin. He'd already been on film in um, Skinner's Baby. He was about one and a half years old. And uh, so by this time, he's about four. So uh, and my great grandfather had been doing two reelers with Buster Keaton and um, uh, Fatty Arbuckle. As a matter of fact, they were family friends and the Arbuckles were family friends. So Chaplin discovers Jackie uh, and was working and did the kid. It took a year and a day to film the kid. Uh, After they started filming, Mutual said, you owe us money. Um, You owe us a deliverable. We're only going to pay you the same amount for, you know, this new six reel thing you're doing. Uh, We're going to pay you for a two reeler. And so Chaplin shut down the kid, went and shot A Day's Pleasure, which is um, came out before the kid, but was shot inside of the kid they went and filmed this quickly uh, at chaplin studios the house they come out of is right you can see it you're like oh that's clearly chaplin studios and it was a quick gag of taking the family down to the san pedro docks and getting on the ferry and, and then driving home 
and a big traffic jam in downtown LA. And they went back to shooting the kid. Uh, that was an international hit. It came out in 1921. Uh, and uh, it launched my great grandfather in our international stardom. It was um, uh, post-World War I. There were millions of orphans uh, from the war. And my grandfather uh, quickly became the first celebrity humanitarian by helping the Near East Relief with the Armenian genocide and funding a million dollars worth of tents and food and clothes and condensed milk uh, to the uh, orphans and setting up camps. Uh, he went on to form a production company. My great-grandfather uh, would write, find the material, uh, kind of co-direct, and my grandfather did a series of films for his own production company, then also MGM. He became the highest paid star at MGM with a $500,000 signing bonus, a two-year contract, four-picture deal. Uh, they fought with Louis B. Mayer over the uh, kind of profit sharing with it, and they were kicked off of the MGM lot. So on their own in the industry, my grandfather, you know, he grows up, he marries Betty Grable his first wife. He was into dancers. He subsequently married four different showgirls. Uh, he entered, he, uh, his, there was a terrible car accident that killed my great grandfather, Junior Durkin, which was my grandfather's best friend. He was his Huck Finn to my grandfather's Tom Sawyer, uh, a ranch hand and a writer for Jackie Coogan Productions. We're all killed in the accident. My grandfather's the only one left alive. Uh, uh, when he's 20 he turns 21 and finds out that my great-grandmother had remarried the business manager and had spent the ironclad trust fund nothing he really had to sue his own mother uh lost got about half of what was left about 126,000 had to be split between the two parties so 52 grand was left but lawyers he had to pay back wallace beery who had um funded his attorneys uh he was left with about 40 grand which he blew in one night at a party at the Brown Derby. He wasn't very good with money. Uh, Betty Grable divorced him. My grandfather had civilian Air Force uh, experience. So he joined the Army Air Corps uh, and fought in World War II in the Burma campaign the, the fly, with General Wingate flying uh, with the Chindits behind enemy lines, building airfields, and then getting out. These are gliders. Injured in the war, uh, he had paralysis on the left side of his body, couldn't feel anything. He could move, fine. He got back to Hollywood in his uniform, nothing. Town is dead to him. He starts doing Westerns, B-movies, playing the heavy. He uh, meets up with friends like John Barrymore, the Dead End Kids like Hunts Hall, the Bowery Boys. Uh, um, uh, and he does High School Confidential uh, and uh, a couple of other just, you know, throwaway B-pictures. Television comes along. He's on his fourth wife. My mother's about 10 years old. Uh, it's 1964. And he is asked to audition for something. He's never auditioned before. So he really wants the project. It is for Uncle Fester in the Adams Family series version. You can see online several other actors that are in full hair and makeup as uh, Uncle Fester. My grandfather went and shaved his head and shaved his eyebrows uh, for it. He did get it. Ran two years opposite Munster's. They debuted and were canceled within a week of each other. Uh, and Monsters had slightly higher ratings because it rode on familiar monster tropes of the universal hammer horror pictures like Dracula, Bride of yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Uh, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Werewolf, and Vamp. And uh, uh, Adam's family was a rich, eccentric, counterculture, loving family that supported each other. And parents clearly had sex. So this was a board <laughs> across. I mean, it was watched because there was a monster craze at the time. But the Adams family was more 
it, it, it wasn't really about the gruesomeness or the, you know, how crazy they thought everyone else was crazy. The monsters would have their straight Beverly go answer the door. So they look like a normal leave it to beaver family, the Adams family. They'd let Lurch or Thing answer the door. They didn't know that they were eccentric. And I love that difference. So after the uh, after that, my grandfather continued working and doing TV and, and film. He had a release the year he died. He had a movie come out. One of his last pictures was The Escape Artist for Zoetrope Pictures with uh, a young um, Griffin O'Neill. And I was on that set that I got to meet Ricky Jay. Uh, and he taught me some magic tricks. Um, and then my grandfather passed with heart failure at 69. Um, what I failed to mention was when he lost his money as a you know, 21 year old, California was quite upset about it. And within 24 hours of the trial ending, they had drafted the young actors bill, the young performers bill, otherwise known as the Coogan Act, which puts 15% of a child's earnings aside into a block trust account. And uh, so that very proud of that legacy. And that yeah. is really my grand grandfather that's, in a nutshell. That's amazing. Like w- what a life that yeah. sounds like. An, if anything sounds like an episodic, you know, that sounds like eight episodes right there. <laughs> I know? left out the time in uh, preps, military prep school, boarding school where uh, this is in um, Santa Cruz. Uh, his roommate was really rich. His parents owned the heart department stores. It was the first department store in California. They were one of the richest families in the Bay area they had to screen for their son's roommate. And they said, I guess Jackie Coogan's okay. He's probably worth, what, $4 million? Fine, he can room with him. They were prankster buddies. They just ruled over the campus, probably dated every girl they could. Well, my grandfather's roommate got kidnapped by two guys that were um, imitating the Lindbergh baby kidnappings. And these were dumb, you know, I don't even want to call them white-collar criminals. They were just working class, but they were caucasian well they were caught they confessed uh my grandfather was actually pulled in for interrogation because they found a pillowcase in the murder scene and it was my grandfather's pillowcase from their room he said oh no brooke had taken the pillowcase to pull a prank um they uh put in the paper to invite people out to the uh, park which was across from the jail uh the uh mayor the chief of police and all of the you know officers left town that weekend leaving two deputies in charge (laughs) Ten thousand people came to the park that day and broke into the jail yanked these two suspects out and they lynched him lynched both of them hung them in the park newspaper photos etc there's something wrong with the lens of the newspaper photographer because there must have been some sort of Vaseline on the lower part of the pictures because you just can't make out any faces of the crowd. The governor <laughs> came out and said, uh, absolute pardons to anyone involved in the lynching. Oh. Uh, and this goes to show what happens yeah. if you come to California and you don't uphold good societal standards. It was unbelievably just buried, shoved under the rug. It was the last public lynching in California's history. Oh, shit. That's been made into a movie starring uh, Burt Lancaster. And uh, it was called Fury, I think, or Blind, or yeah, White, something Fury. It's been made into four different films, just that incident of the lynching. But I want to include that into my grandfather's kind of upbringing with Betty Grable and the war and the thing, all these things that people don't even know about. Usually it's just the kid and Uncle Fester. But he had a 
interesting little no, gash. Yeah, no, that, yeah, abso- yeah, absolutely. Like all, all that stuff for sure. And growing up, like like you guys are all like lifelong California guys, right? Yeah. Uh, so fourth. No, my great grandfather was probably born in New York. Third, third generation California, born in Palm Springs. Did yeah. ah, listen, Palm Springs. <laughs> I got to tell you that la- uh, Andy Samberg's movie just came out last year called. Palm oh yeah, Springs. yeah. That fucking movie is amazing. If you haven't, so I'll tell it. you about Palm Springs and why it's such a big resort okay. community for Los Angeles and Hollywood. During the Hollywood contract system, um, you were not allowed to leave Los Angeles or go more than a hundred miles outside of Los Angeles without notifying the studio of where you're going to go and what you're doing and stuff. Palm Springs is technically 99 miles from Los Angeles. <laughs> And I think the hot springs is a little past. So they created a little highway 111 and a little town. They're like, no, nah, we don't have to notify you. That's great. Um, yeah. Do you, um, I, I know recently you came out to New York to see Hamilton. Do you like, do you have, do you no, come out saw here? It, here in LA? We saw oh. it. it was the Eliza tour and they were a year and whatever ago, they were going to do their first night. And it was the day Tom Hanks had, tested positive everything was shutting down and they went dark yes. so their pre-opening night their debut night they were about to step on stage and they said hold 368 days later or whatever they finally so we went to the um the debut of the of the tour of the eliza tour it was supposed to happen you know a okay, year yeah. ago i saw that i saw that picture and for some reason i was like oh maybe he's like hanging out on oh no no no, no. <laughs> hanging that out would be, that would be amazing <laughs> yeah, it was but, uh, a great cast, great show. Uh, interesting to see it from a fixed point of view. Yeah. Um, film theorists have said the difference between film and theater. There's six inherent differences. There is, um, well, editing. Uh, a stage yeah. change uh, can take 30 seconds. We've got Queen Mab's speech from Romeo and Juliet. That only exists because it was covering a set change. Um, we've got, uh, and in film, it can happen in one twenty-fourth of a second. We're interior bathroom now we're exterior mars bam so film can edit uh theater you have to sit there and watch it all the way through um uh depth of depth uh depth, film yeah. is pretty plateau and presentational film can have foreground background um there is a uh, uh movement by the audience or by the camera you can't exactly tell every audience member to stand up and move slightly slowly over four seats and then sit down again but you can do camera movement uh, you can do an insert shot, uh, say that you have a stage play of a trial, but you want the audience to see one of the trial old ladies wringing her handkerchief. Well, in stage, you'd have to have everyone kind of freeze, maybe a little light focus, and then have that be the only movement on stage for them to really catch it. In film, you can go from a wide shot of the whole thing and everyone, t- and then a close-up of that, the handkerchief back out to the wide shot. Um, there are, those are four, I think for you there was a couple of more can't remember what they were <laughs> four, four sounds good yeah uh, i, so I coming from oh, i'm sorry oh, like no. coming from that background uh, of you know with acting in your family is it what i mean you started early i mean i'm looking at your credits and you were on like every tv show i grew up watching i mean yeah. unbelievable every single one we grew up watching we're like holy shit when did you decide like this is going to be you know, for me, or was it decided for you or? <laughs> uh, it, it was um, a bit of uh, environment and genetics, I think, because I wasn't aware of who anything what was happening at four mm-hmm. when I told my mom I wanted to be on TV. She goes, what? 
<laughs> She's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? In, so in, like, all, yeah, fa- in all fairness, I probably said the same thing. So, <laughs> right. I mean, for me, it was Sesame Street, Electric Company, Zoom, you know. <laughs> In LA, we have a show called Via Alegre, which was half in Spanish, but it was a kid's show, News or Review, HR Puff and stuff. I'm like, I want to be on TV. That looks fun. <laughs> and my mom says, well, you know, you have to start in commercials and then go up to guest appearances and then, you know, movies of the week. And then maybe, you know, and I'm like, I what commercials, what do we, what do you mean? She goes, well, yeah, you have to like sing and dance. And I'm like, nah, I'm not interested. <laughs> so about six months later, she says she had friends over and the TV's on and I come and I jump into the middle of the room and I start doing the commercial and singing whatever's on the thing. I don't remember any. And I finish and I'm like, okay, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I want to, she's like, God, I guess you're serious. And we went down to LA. We were living in Sacramento at the time. Quickly found a $400 place to rent in Malibu. It was either a, um, a tennis change room in Malibu, which doesn't have a kitchen. It's just a room and a bathroom or um, a little studio apartment in the Valley, which is really hot and awful. So my mom went for the, we now are living in Malibu. I've got a talent agent and I immediately started doing McDonald's commercials and cool whip and cereal and toys and He-Man and Texaco and Ford. And do you, um, do you get, do you get toys and, and McDonald's yeah. swag? You get the, no, but sometimes when you do the commercial, like I did a lot of Mattel commercials, they'll give you the toy or the prototype. They're like, okay. This isn't what the toy is really going to be. We haven't made them yet, but this is close. That's you can cool. take it if you want. Yeah, that's cool. I'm like, dude, they wouldn't give me a sucker man. Though. I was really pissed. So I did the sucker man commercial and it's online. You can type in sucker man commercial <laughs> in uh, YouTube. And it's this big, you know, stretch Armstrong looking guy with suction cups all over him. And you huck it <laughs> and it sticks to the fridge or sticks to, you know, a plate glass window and they wouldn't give it to me. And so my mom was like, well, that's bullshit. We're taking this damn sucker man. So I remember we were leaving and like <laughs> picked one up and I'm just like, she goes, pretend like you're playing with it, but throw it across the room and stick on the fridge. The fridge was right by the door to get out of the little studio. So I'm like, yeah. And I stuck it to the fridge from across the room. Blah, blah, blah. So on our way out, we're like, <laughs> grab that thing off the fridge and took it. It's like missing. It's got hot glued suckers. Cause it was totally a prototype. Uh, you might, you might get an email after this show. <laughs> I did a hundred national commercials for over 60 brands. And uh, Wrigley Spearmint Gum was a favorite. I was the shoe shine boy in the Wrigley Spearmint Gum commercial. What was it ever not fun? Like doing the commercials? Was it ever? Did you ever feel like, oh, okay, like I'm kind of over commercials, or was it just always fun? No, you have to have perspective. This is make believe. You're getting paid to make believe and play in a sandbox. So if you are sticky or hot or uncomfortable or wet, what? It'll be a good break for lunch in a little while. Just relax. So I did learn, I did, Super Train was one that I got injured on and I hated it. And it was um, awful. Me and Rachel Jacobs were brother and sister. We were grandkids of the conductor on Super Train. And it was a Dick Van Dyke episode. Larry Linville's also in it. And uh, we were brats that were like practical joking and pranking the whole crew throughout the episode. So at the end, they get revenge on us by dumping a bucket full of mustard, mayonnaise and ketchup on us. So they get us in this little like, you know, thing between the cars and then they dump it on us. And um, when they did the stunt the first time, we're fine. We're in our little like prep school uniforms, cute as like eight and 10 years old. We're so cute. And she played my sister often. Um, They dumped the thing, but they didn't put any sort of thing that guide it. It broke the fishing line and it didn't spill. It just dropped a bucket full of basically, um, you know, paint, like tempera paint or whatever. 
it hit my shoulder, bam, separating my shoulder. And then it went boop and sploosh all over us. Unusable oh. take. They're like, we got to go again. And I'm like, no, I'm going to go to the doctor. And <laughs> no. And they go, no, you, you got to shoot it again. And so I'm crying in my trailer and I'm, I have to hop in the shower and get all this stuff out of me. And, and, and like, they somehow convinced my mom and me, we're like, one more time, we'll give you one more time and changed again. And I went and did it again. This time they just had a guy pour it and then drop the bucket. I'm like, that's smart. Um, that was the only time that I kind of got hurt. I did have a stunt double die on me oh, at 12 wow. or 13 for, um, it was a series of Belarus books, the, um, like the clock in its walls and stuff. There's a uh, little hero called Anthony Monday. And I did a thing called the treasure of Alpheus T. Winterborn. Stunt double had fallen off the roof of a house that's in the kind of climax of the movie as we find the treasure and missed the airbag and went into a coma and died three days later. Ah, an after school special I felt, or CBS school like house library, whatever it was called. So it's only a movie. Uh, they come out every Friday. Everyone just relax, have some perspective. Because I know that people that make movies tend to think that that's the most important thing in the world. Although interesting, they included it in the essential industries for the pandemic. I, I would think news gathering, that makes sense. But, you know, another season of Jersey Shore. Do we really need this? Is this <laughs> can we decide on what's essential or not? Who gets to decide that? I don't so know. The first, first, season, first season was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm go I, I, I like the progression because I, I guess maybe that's the way it was back then and your mom seemed to know that it's like commercials, TV, movies, yes. and, and just re news. yeah, just recently you 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 made a movie or you were in a movie called Limelight where yeah. it's such a flip side, you know, like where that's not the way things are now. Now you need a phone and and maybe, you know, like a, a pop and Instagram account and stuff. Uh, speak on that movie, which I think it was 2017. And based on a true story, I okay. asked um, the creator, I said, how much of this is true? And he goes, pretty much all of it. Wow. And uh, so it's biographical. It um, I played a uh, rapey talent agent extortionist. Perfect. Andy Dick had fallen out last minute and they called me at nine o'clock. Oh, the that's... night before shooting and they said hey will you do this and of course it was a buddy of mine sean kane and he's co-producing karate um, kid three come on yeah yeah uh and i'm like yes i don't even care what it is well there's kind of gay rapey kind of and i'm like okay that's oh, that's great for my career i'm like i need i need yeah. a part like that i was not prepared and um it we shot I, my parts were two three days of work or something but um uh great cast the product oh uh who's in it um chokichi uh, rip nichols yeah jameson she's fantastic and yeah. very nervous about her acting very serious about it yeah and uh she was rehearsing all the time and stuff it was great um and and not locked i've seen people that are not act like well every actor wants to be a rock star Every rock star wants to be a porn star and every porn star wants to be an actor. It's kind of this <laughs> into the group. So kind of help her out and stuff. And she'd find, I'd do a comedy bit and she'd latch onto it and um, take notes. And uh, she's very, very, so she really wanted to show she had comedy acting chops. And I think she did a great job. She plays a PR person trying to cover up the whole rape extortion thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and uh, another one, which I love just recently, because Listen, we all love don't. Oh, tell and Lip Nikki is a hired best friend. 
Is he? Yeah, they hire the studio hires a crew for him. The guy's fresh in town from Missouri or wherever the hell he's from. Yeah. And they're like, well, you need a crew. And they Lipnicki shows up with the boys and they go out and get, you know, paparazzi and all that stuff. And then when the money runs out and he gets off contract or whatever, he tries to go over to Lipnicki and he's like, dude, bro, man, it's just a paid romance. It was it's really funny. <laughs> all right. Sorry. Moving on. No, yeah. But um, listen, when we said we were going to talk to you, like I what I realize is just uh, like the adoration people have for you. Um, cause I think a lot of like the, the people in, in, in our, me, no. yeah, I, in, lucky to, I, I mean, I listen, people, I feel like we all grew up together. So, uh, that, <laughs> well, that's, we, did. we did, we did. So, uh, <laughs> the adoration, uh, probably reached, you know, uh, uh, Kevin Smith because, you know, you did, you did your, your, uh, don't tell the, uh, mom, the babysitter's dead in the reboot, which I mean, that was a lot of fun, right? How'd they reach out? Super fun. They didn't. My wife told me to ask Kevin Smith if ah. I could be in reboot. Hey, whatever. Even better. Hey. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I had seen him at Smodcastle on Santa Monica Boulevard here in L.A. Get a Smodcastle out here for a while. And um, I'd already been interviewed by Toad on one of their show on a podcast. And we're watching The Shark is still work, uh, still working. The three and a half hour Michael J. Roddy directed a uh, great Jaws documentary. I didn't know Kevin was there. So afterwards, I'm down in the lobby of the theater and I see Kevin from across the thingy. And I'm like, oh my God, it's Kevin Smith. I'm with my buddy. And um, I don't want to bug him. He's got a line, three deep of fans, 20 people all talking to him. So he's giving him great Kevin. And I don't know how he is in person yet. So I see him from across the room and he kind of looks up over me and he goes, give me a head nod. I turn yeah. to my friend, I'm like, I'm like Kevin Smith just head nodded. You know that thing when you're 12 and you're on your bike and you pass the guy in school and you're like, Hey, what's up? Yeah. I was like, cool. That was it. That was <laughs> so my wife's getting um, George Siegel's uh, selfie with George Siegel, trying to get his selfie with him at his star ceremony. And oh, Kevin man. Smith, who's All directing right, a lot of Goldberg's episodes, uh, spoke at the star ceremony and talked about, you can't sit on your ass. You got to ask for what you want. You got to go for it. The universe doesn't know what you need. You got to ask for it. So when she asked Kevin for the selfie, she goes, you know, my husband has a, a story you know, she explains the smod castle and the head nod. And she goes, you know, he's Keith Coogan and, and conditions her. And before she finishes, Kevin Smith goes, I know exactly who Keith Coogan is. And, <laughs> of course. Uh, and he goes, you know, before I started making movies, I watched a lot of movies. And so anyone that was on the screen, you know, before he kind of made that leap yeah. into it, he, he looks at, it, I guess, differently. And so when we got a chance at um, uh, Hollywood Improv uh, to see him, and I just asked him, I said, you know, can I be in reboot? He goes, you're in, you're, yes, you're in, you're in, you're in. And I was um, skeptical because I know how Hollywood works. And until you don't have the job until your second paycheck clears, you, <laughs> you know, a call sheet, a mark that you stand on and they're yelling, rolling, even yeah. then you can still get cut out of the picture. So, you know, I'm kind of reticent and, but I'm eager to do it. Um, he has his heart attack. He rewrites reboot. He, um, I stay on him somehow. I see him at Sony and like Kevin, I, you know, my agent said to contact your production office and he was just give me your phone. So now I have Kevin Smith's phone number and I'm like, Oh my God, this is the, we're best buddies. Um, and, uh, my wife is so intuitive. She'll go, but reach out now. And I go, what? She goes, yeah, yeah. Just reach out now. And I'm like, or thank him for this or do whatever. And I, as soon as I do, he goes, by the way, they're ready for contracts. And it would be like, so serendipitous. So, I don't know. It was good. And then went to New Orleans, um, shot it in a whirlwind, like two hours. 
it was the first scene that day. They've been working all nights for the the weed con that they had, the uh, chronic con. And, uh, you know, 150 uh, Jay and Silent Bob cosplayers. Um, Jay, who's quite a method actor, I have to tell you. I don't know if you've seen uh, Madness and the Method. No. Uh, okay, so Jay directed Madness and the Method, which is about him only getting offered stoner best friend roles. Yeah, is the, okay. the lead. That's fine. And he's okay. studying, and he's, you know, Stanislavski and stuff. And he, there's a book. Kevin Smith knows about the book and it is for the ultimate method acting book. And it's, it's crazy because it talks about everything you need to do to really become a big star. Well, it, uh, it spirals into uh, a vehicular manslaughter that he pins on um, a soccer player uh, that then he gets notoriety for being friends with him and then he gets heat in town then he's the hottest star that they want and the whole time he's still trying to find the last chapters of the book or talk to the guy who wrote it it's a really interesting way I mean kind of went through that I was always the best friend the brother you know um, and I that's fine with me let me come in do an info dump I'm great at exposition I can do two pages of exposition and still make it funny um, hiding out it's a good example um and so uh I, as soon as we film the scene i run over to kevin and i'm like just don't cut me out oh god please he's like don't worry i'm not gonna cut you out and it, there was more we sat down to lunch and um the video chat feed he goes it was you know good scene and all the things and he goes that's great you know it was a good payoff i go payoff to what because we didn't get the script we only got our pages for that day kevin doesn't give up the whole script he goes oh no we set you up in Brody Sash I'm like what he goes no no they name check you they quote the movie you know I'm like you're kidding me so and then the end credit stuff and then having Thor say dishes are done man goes full circle back yeah. to a different babysitting movie with Thor I mean it's just the mind boggles we it's 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 just all the love of, of that we have like he like he said before he made movies he watched movies and that's what we do that's why you like I play music Brian plays music you know what I mean like we, we, music and movies and and all this stuff just come together and and when Kevin Smith first came out he hit me like Tarantino hit me but on a different level like it made me want to almost not look at music for a for a minute and just be like uh, what. I no keep going. On yeah, music yeah. Keep going. yeah, yeah. So, um, if if the music bug wasn't so hard, like when I first saw Clerks and when I first saw uh, Pulp Fiction, like they made me want to write like a movie because like it was so like it just like it blew me away. And then of course I just kept playing guitar anyway. But Kevin Smith was very important for me for sure. Sure. Well, music and writing I think share a lot. I studied music growing up, piano. And then trombone and marching band. Self-taught myself how to play guitar. Does Kenny know that? All C instruments. That's important because those E flat, B flat instruments. Yeah. Screw you. That's. I'm sorry, saxophones and trumpets. You have it hard. Um, I think I only dated C instruments in band. Too. I mean, talk about being a nerd. I was a math nerd, an English, you know, a lit nerd. History. Actually, history was my weakest subject, but still a huge passion of me. Uh, math and music use the same structure. There is a intro uh, of a verse, kind of laying out the story. Yep. Uh, maybe repeat of a bit of the verse for the you know, uh, second act. You got a chorus. 
Uh, you got the car chase, which is the bridge. Yeah. Let's just break the narrative and go off. Uh, and then you come back with a refrain, uh, remind us of the stakes uh, and uh, maybe another verse to close the story up and then chorus out. And um, we use the same terminology in sheet music as writing a script. Uh, there is lyric, there's melody, there is um, counterpoint. There, sometimes there could be dialogue written on both sides. That's kind of, you know, um, what, uh, West Wingish. Uh, there is um, a rest, a beat. As a matter of fact, what's funny is when you write a script, it says beat. Now, if that isn't a musical term, I don't know what is. Um, and uh, so I feel that that is a shared a discipline where there's a Venn diagram in there, you know, and a lot of great songs have, you know, great storytelling. Desperate. I, I'm going to just go to Eagle songs right now because they have the best storytelling in their songs. Shout out to Joe Walsh. He's our next guest. Um, and, oh, and another thing. For, yeah, exactly. I went up for a Joe Walsh series. Did you? Yeah. To be his like Butler. It was like a Joe Walsh show where he was Joe Walsh. And oh, like <laughs> actually Joe um, Walsh in it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I don't think it ever got, greenlit um oh so that thing on clerks there were two reasons why it inspired me one and, and maybe other people one just the method of it being truly an independent film absolutely that was rare you didn't have a lot of link letters you know i know slacker inspired kevin and etc um but the then also what's in it the dialogue the storytelling the unconventionalness of just turning a cam black and white camera on with okay quality sound and it's not about the film itself. It's about these people. So, and he builds a universe at it that he stretches into eight films or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and that, um, the dialogue too is like, so that's what I, I, I love the way he writes dialogue because back then it was like how we all spoke. Same thing with Tarantino. It's like, it was the first time or not the first time, but it, like you hear like how people talk and you're like, oh, this is completely how people talk, you know? And I think that the two are tied together. It wouldn't have been made as a regular mainstream film because of the dialogue and the structure of the just a camera on two people. They're like, no, this is boring. We're not going to make it. There's no stakes. You never leave the store. They're, oh, you're on the roof for a minute? That doesn't count. Mm -hmm. You allude to a funeral and the things. You, they're like, they talk about more interesting things that ever happened in the store. They're like, we don't get it. That's why I think Kevin wanted to put a violent ending, not only just to get it over with and to write an ending, which was wrong. Um, he needed just, he needed something to happen, but that's the point of it. They're clerks. They're waiting for life to happen. Um, so it was the content is the delivery method. It has to be an indie film because it would never get made otherwise by studios. And then it's very content is subversive. And eventually it becomes subversive of the studio system in reboot. They talk about Saban was pizza making motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sabaros. Well, Sabaros. So stars, funny. Okay. They make fun of the very people that gave them money to make the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's Classic. Kevin. It seems like that's Kevin to a T. I, I think he, you know, from listening to him on his podcast and just interviews, like, uh, just seems like a really cool fucking guy. Um, I, before we end, like, I really want to just talk real quick about adventures and babysitting just because it's, I, I, I think probably the movie that, that maybe, I, could it be like the the biggest one right the one that people remember the most you know between that and, and don't tell sure uh imdb says it's the fox and the hound okay all right <laughs> but i'm gonna say adventures in terms of the box office it puts up it'll put your four 
most interacted with most liked highest rated films and yeah, it's right. um and budget and all that stuff so it's fox and the hound adventures in babysitting don't tell on the babysitter's dead and toy soldiers yes. are my big four listen um adventures the babysitting has see i know how the sausage is made i know what it takes to make a good poster art oh so yeah, good Drew's and, and you used it you used yeah. it yeah it's such you, a great idea um you'd hire a good scorer michael Kamen. you hire a director on the verge of one of the greatest directing careers on the planet he'd already proven himself as a good writer gremlins goonies young sherlock holmes what he was a spielberg deborah hill deborah hill and linda oaks um they went on together to produce fisher king and then after deborah passed um linda produced interstellar um but Halloween. Halloween, it'll always be. Yeah. I, I have a shirt that says a Deborah Hill production. That's why yes. I wanted to shout her out because she she will always be, you know, uh, her and Carpenter would always be Halloween. That's her hand stabbing at the yes. beginning of Halloween. Yes. It was the cheapest one. We only had one take to go and I wanted to make sure it was done right. Kind of like when Spielberg tore off the face in um, Poltergeist. Poltergeist yes. right, right. Spielberg goes, Look, we only have one shot at this. You guys got to go home. I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> that is one of the most horrifying things. Um, it had a great script by David Simpkins, who is an amazing television story creator, showrunner, Warehouse 13, Buffy, Angel, Briscoe County Jr. Wow, I forgot. But yeah. Adventures of Babysitting is the only feature he's ever written. Okay. What the hell? Um, at times they had... Jane Fonda, uh, God, who else? Kelly McGill. And there were so many people attached to Adventures in Babysitting as it bounced from this place, then to Paramount. Then finally it wound up at Touchstone. And Touchstone had a formula. Silver Screen Partners 3, the film finance company, backed all of Touchstone's slate of films. And they were $10 million budgeted movies. They'd make five a year and hope one of them was a $100 million picture. Then you have Stakeout. Risky business. I mean, not risky business. Stakeout, Splash, um, uh, Outrageous People, uh, great, you know, uh, fun kind of movies. Outrageous um, Fortune, was it? Out, outrageous Fortune, that's it. I Sorry, love that, that movie. Yeah, that movie is great. Uh, Peter Coyote. Uh, oh, absolutely. So yeah. we get it. It's called Adventures in Babysitting. <laughs> We're like, yeah, right. <laughs> and I look at it and I'm like, wow, it's okay. I see the Spielberg in it. I see the Spielberg in it. And my buddy had done, um, I, my one of my best friends growing up, Gabe Jarrett, was Mitch in Real Genius. Okay. Uh, and that was about the same budgeted level. And I was very jealous. He got to work with Martha Coolidge and work on a real studio picture. I think uh, that was Orion. So here I would touch down and it, uh, we had screen tests. <laughs> so down to the, I got to watch Valerie Bertinelli and um, uh, Phoebe Cates. Wow. Screen test for the babysitter. Wait a minute. Uh, okay. I mean, I guess, I, I, how did she not get it? I don't know. I love Elizabeth Shue. I'm because Elizabeth Shue wanted this movie so bad. She's okay. like, how do I book it? How do I get it? What do you need out of me? How do you? And she was, I think, favored the whole time. Okay. At one point, they wanted Phoebe Cates, and then the someone in Disney showed someone Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and they said, Phoebe Cates will never be in a Disney picture. Uh. <laughs> That's one of the most important scenes in, scenes in history. history. <laughs> that was and the beginning. Yeah, that was the beginning of many made things. Made many of boys into men. A teen event horizon. <laughs> <laughs> what about that guy you said that might have been Thor, Brian? Oh, John McHale Thor? 
that he was, uh, do you know who that is? He's, he's a kind of a, I wouldn't call him a musician. <laughs> yeah. <it's laughs> he was a, a big weightlifter guy. He went by Thor. And by Thor. And, oh, and right. He was, he was supposedly going to be the Thor at the end, but I, I guess they went with D'Onofrio, uh, the success of Full Metal Jacket and the name or whatnot. But I didn't, they did. I didn't know if that was true or not. But uh, We had amazing casting. Uh, Jane Jenkins, Janet Hershenson. Um, they had cast things like, uh, um, what was the Danny DeVito one where he was teaching at a military place? Oh, Renaissance oh. Man? Yeah, they cast um, what was uh, Joel Schumacher directed. It was military, Vietnam again, and it was Colin Farrell's first movie. To, um, oh, God, what the hell was it? Uh, they were they cast uh, the Outsiders TV series. They were just known for being up there in that John Hughes. Kind of, like, if you got into one of their projects, you're like, this worked good. Oh, they cast the... Uh, um, Pony Express series, which had Balthazar Getty in it. So we also knew anyone who got in Tigerland. Tigerland, yes. Uh, and also Mike Fenton. Fenton and Feinberg used to work together. Anyway, there, there was about five huge casting directors in town. So I'd been trying to get on movies since I was very young, um, starting with The Shining, uh, the um, E.T., Goonies, Gremlins, uh, Stand by me. Oh wow. uh, Christmas story. Uh name it. If I had a kid part in it, you know, I went up for it. And so this I also wanted it very badly. And, and I had uh, graduated high school at 16. And uh, so I could work as an adult. And it wound out that if they hired me, they wouldn't have to buy an extra plane ticket or feed my mom or get a <laughs> set teacher. They did have a set teacher for Anthony Rapp and Maya Bruton. Um, but I could work as an adult. And work longer hours, get more mm. close-ups, all that other good stuff. Hang around and just watch filming or whatever. Um, so good fun. We went up to Toronto, shot in for two months in Toronto. Did about two and a half weeks, I think, in Chicago. And then came to L.A. for Intravision, which was front projection they used in Fugitive, Stand By Me, Outland with Sean Connery. Um, James Cameron really loved front projection. I think he did Aliens with it. That's great. Uh, for effects shots that don't have a traveling mat, there's no blue screen, there's no optical printer, and it shows up in dailies, usable and cuttable into the movie. That's how we released it so fast. We started in January, finished shooting in March, and it came out for the July 4th weekend. April, May, June, July. They, four months, they did all the post-production, the music, sound mixing, color timing, struck prints, did an ad to campaign. What what'd you think? What what you think uh, when you watch the final uh, the final cut? Like oh, after you saw the movie, it's probably I it's... cut the movie in my head while we're <laughs> shooting it. I'm like, it's gonna be that take three. It's gonna be that they're gonna do this. I could see how they were shooting it. I was like, I see. How, I cut it together in my head, and it was you know 85 percent of what I'd imagined. It moved along quick. With everything we shot, we used only trimmed a line or two you know at the beginning of a scene or end of a scene or you know kind of cut something out the most chopped up thing is at frat house party when um he gets in trouble with the dumb blonde played by lolita david somebody told lolita davidovich that that name would never fly in hollywood and they convinced her to use lolita david for her film debut right after that she started working in uh bigger films and she went back to lolita davidovich so funny but managers can convince actors to do 
That's that's what they did to Ricky uh, Richie Valens. So that whole, um, you know, you big bo hunk and oh, you're I'm gonna murder you. There was about five other lines of dialogue with Dan trying to help us and like intervene with the bully and like Anthony Rapp gonna get in trouble and they just kind of chopped it up, chopped it up and got us into the uh, jeep as quick as they could. That was the only one I can imagine that that was like the most edited scene for what we shot. And then, the, the, like, so you watch a screening, and man, I, I can't yeah, imagine because screening, which was on the Disney lot in the A theater, right next to the very stage where I recorded the voice for the Fox and the Hound. Must have been just exciting. They have. Um, it was. We were over the moon, and about a week later, it released. And the night it released, Chris Columbus hired a limo. And me and Anthony Rapp were over at um, Amy Madigan and Ed Harris's house. Is it Ed Harris and is it Amy Madigan or Ed Harris and Ed Harris's wife? Okay. And we were late meeting up for the limo. So we met them at a theater and hopped in the limo. And we went from theater to theater around LA. You know, and Chris Columbus would come up to the box office and go, Hey, I'm the director. Could we go sneak in? And they're like, Sure. And we got into every theater, no problem. And we, open up the theater and kind of sneak into the back. I got to try that. We'd catch it at different parts and we'd stay for a little while just to kind of, you know, feel what jokes universally worked, what jokes only worked with certain audiences, you know, and um, there were some consistent ones. We saw every time they worked, every time we were in the theater, we're like, all right, the audience is really enjoying it. The, the theater was were pretty full too. So we're like, we might have a hit on our hands. It wasn't, it was okay. And, they did okay. And Katzenberg, he did something interesting. He goes, leave it. They go, what? He goes, don't pull it from theaters. Usually they would give a film like two, three weeks. He goes, leave it running. And it ran for the whole summer. The second weekend, the box office went up. Now that you that, don't that's unheard of. Yeah. a 60% die off or something. To be fair, they did increase theaters. So they added some more theaters, which you know is the reason why it went up. But it got word of mouth. It had legs. It made $36 million. Off of a eight to ten million, they say twelve million dollar budget. That's lies. That's all lies. The only reason it's twelve million dollar budget, it was eight, then ten, and that's because of the budget for the VHS release, the budget for the DVD release, the budget for the Blu-ray. Every time they do PR or strike new art, cover art, that goes back into the original budget. <laughs> That's why films budgets tend to start to inflate over time because it's still an active account where the budget is still being tagged as a cost. But it's, I think it's made money and played a lot, played on cable quite a bit. And now it's on Disney Plus, edited for content. Yes, because I watched it yesterday on Disney Plus and I was like, oh, wait, I'm like, don't fool with the babysitter. I'm like, what happened? Yeah, <laughs> Thor's a weirdo and don't fool yes. with the babysitter. Um <laughs> Here's the thing. The reason why I think it kind of worked is it was a little darker and edgier and there was an actual like threat level in the movie. You felt it, the music and the bad get in the car and run them over um, <laughs> that it felt dangerous because of the language. We have like quite a lot of bad words, a lot of bad words. And that gave it an adult kind of a feel. And so kids felt like they're getting away with something. And parents were like, uh, once they got through it a couple of times they're like fine and they like yeah. it too yeah. um, it is a wholesome film it's like you know <laughs> it overall, is it's good messages yeah. for coming of age sure um you know brad growing up and realize you don't always get what you want <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yes, yeah. You're, yeah, for sure. I mean, and who could blame him? I mean, Chris Parker was definitely a great babysitter. Uh, now, I, I'm just going to ask one last question. You know, I don't, I don't want to hold you hostage here. Uh, what would be your idea for the third babysitter movie? You know, we have Don't Faster Tell Mom. Babysitter, Kill, Kill. <laughs> it be a, I either had it as dueling babysitters that fight to the death over the yeah. charges, or you know, I went the satanic demonic route where the babysitters possess and the kids have to use all of the things they've seen in movies. I get a Bible, I don't know, some holy water. Like they don't know how to deal with it. They gotta, but that's been made. There's a possessed babysitter movie out there. So um I, I want to do horror so that I get into more horror conventions. Okay. I think it's the natural evolution. We've got Adventures of Babysitting. Don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. Maybe I'll do Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Undead. That could that could, that could be good. Yeah. Um, I I don't know. I, you know, uh, it would be interesting. They did, redid it for Disney Channel. It's rated G. They did. Um, and I think there's seven kids running or two babysitters. Uh, and they they note some things like Dawson's Garage, the camel hair coat. You know, they they kind of echo things. Um but it's not the same characters or same families necessarily, but it is called adventures in babysitting, not just adventure. So many generations can go on this adventure. I think we could have other versions of adventures in baby. The sitter was the R rated version of adventures of babysitting. Or uh, just read what that Samara weaving movie was pretty good on Netflix. I forget mm. the babysitter. It's called yes. actually the babysitter. Yeah. yeah and that was um, like- how about, uh, Elizabeth Shue needs a babysitter and hires Brad, but he messes it all up. I don't know. I just can't get a handle on the plot. I think maybe you got it maybe, though somewhere. I don't know. I don't know. It. it should be it should be trashy. It should be grindhouse. Make it cheap. Get as many as the original cast members as you can, and um, make it cheap for two million. Go to uh, Bloomhouse. Hey, Bloomhouse, you want to get in on the babysitter gang? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I think, yeah, Bloomhouse definitely has their finger on. Mm. on they, they got the machine going. Sure. I had an idea that was called, it's just called My Third Babysitter Movie. And I'm Keith Coogan in it. And I got hired on a low budget, almost non-union, like I won't work non-union, but, you know, in um, Appalachia. <laughs> and it turns into wrong turn where they're really murdering the cast. Yes. And I'm like, have to get away. Or no, and the girl that we're working with is I like method that. actor. I I, the it. girl playing the killer babysitter is Method, and she starts killing everybody. So I, I like and that. And I, I have to escape with my life and a new career. <laughs> I I actually like the Wrong Turn movies. I think they're they're a lot of fun. Well, the like, first one is the first one is um, Eliza Dushku. I think the Wrong Turn did to Appalachian mutant movies what um, the Cabin in the Woods did to. Um, gothic horror and uh and 13th floor and matrix and you know and also just pinning the teen kind of tropes um great a great 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 stuff have you been watching like a lot of horror since you're doing the conventions like brushing up on some stuff or were you always kind of like a fan my wife hates horror i love me a good body modification horror yeah. anytime where something's missing or something's not supposed to be there. Why is that growing out of that? Yeah. Why is that no longer attached to my body? Think Brundle Fly. I love that stuff. Now I did find an unwatchable movie. Imprint, Masters of Horror. Oh shit, that's a good one. That's yeah, a, to Keisha. You had to look away. 
tell me you didn't go. Oh God. <laughs> That's the Takish Takishi Mike, right? The, yeah, Takishi Mike. His his um magnum opus. Yeah, that's that's a good uh, Brian. Did you see that one? I did not see that. I'm, one. I'm no. gonna send it to you. It wasn't included on the DVD releases in the series. Yeah, that's... like we can't put this on video. I'm gonna send I have to ask though because uh, you said body modification horror thing because we had Brian Usen on the show. Have you seen Do You Know Society, the film from the 80s? That's my favorite body horror <laughs> film ever. Yeah. Have you seen that one, Society? Wait, no. Oh, you got to see that. Oh, yeah, it's you got to see mo- that. Some of the most grotesque body images. It came out, what, 88? 89. 89. 89 by Brian Okay. Fantastic. I'll send you the, the link. Video Chef's drone. Kiss. But, yeah, um, very very Cronenberg. Cronen, scanners. Scanners sure. is, you know, fantastic. Sure. Um, and uh, those good Tom Savini horror effects that were real. They were visceral. They're latex. They're lit right with all the glycerin goo all over them and KY and um, I liked seeing, you know, really good like spears coming through necks. And sure. um, there was one where, God, I can't remember the name of the movie. It was the first time I saw the eye one done really well. It was a bow and arrow done through a keyhole. The guy looks through the thing and then he <laughs> shoot him. That was awful. Oh, yeah. I actually uh, the band Iron Reagan, which is like kind of like a punk hardcore band. They have a song called Igor. And the video is about 90 seconds and it's all clips from movies showing eye trauma. And that's one of the clips that they show. Probably full cheese zombie too, I would imagine, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, uh, listen, I, I, I don't want to keep you. Uh, yes. Thank hey. you so much for the for your time. Thank you. Um, now I feel like we could do this Toy Soldiers deep dive and I feel like, you know, like uh, I'll be like, we have some insight. I mean, we didn't really talk too much about it in the cast, but we'll, 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 we'll handle that for you. Keith, thank you so much, man. We love your movies. And like I said, I feel like we grew up with you and you are, I mean, man, you're super cool. So thank you for doing it. Thanks guys. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. it. Where can fans, you're on all the socials where they can uh, find out where you're appearing at conventions, what you got going on. I'll put, I'll, I'll, I'll put the links up. Thanks. Uh, Instagram is Keith Coogan. And Twitter is Keith Coogan. I'm really creative that way. <laughs> and then my website is keithcooganonline.com. That's and the link you can it. order your own Don't Tell on the Babysitter's Dead signed dish. The dishes are done, man. That's right. And I also oh. sell uh, other autographs and stuff and cameo. I've got a cameo profile as well. Big and uh, yeah. Terrific. Thank you so much, Keith. We really appreciate it. Thanks. I could nerd out about movies for ever and ever. So I know me too. I don't want I don't uh, to We don't want to hog your time. Thank you. I, All right, guys. Take care. Take care, man. Dishes are done, man. Yeah, uh, man. All right. That's later. a drop. <laughs> later.